And we're going to just kind of work our way through Matthew chapter 21. It's been some years since we've gone through just the, uh, the recounting of the, the story, the account of the triumphal entry and some of the things that happened around Holy Week. And so we're just going to slow down this week. I, I invite you to join us on Friday night for our Good Friday service. We actually have two for you to choose from. One's at 4 p.m. and one's at 6 p.m. Uh, we're going to have communion that night as a part of that service. And then on Easter Sunday, we have a sunrise service at 7 a.m. And then we have a 10 a.m. service with a, a light meal in between those two services for us to be able to celebrate our risen Savior together. But in looking back over the last few years, I realized it's been some time since we actually just walked back through the account of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection together as a church, and I thought this year would be a good year to just slow down a little bit and take familiar stories and unpack them afresh in ways that might speak to us today. And I think what we're going to see as we read through, we're just going to take it a couple of verses at a time from uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. We're going to take those a a few verses at a time, and we're going to see this, that the, the glorious attributes of King Jesus are on display in this account This is the beginning of the climactic ending of his first coming. But it informs how it is that we should look forward to his second coming. See, there's eternal significance to what's happening in today's passage. There's eternal significance to these words. They, They give us life, yes, for today, but they help us to look forward to the life to come. And so we... We do well to consider and to think deeply about our Savior. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago in our Daniel series, Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem. What did that mean? He was was intent on being a part of what he had come to do. He is an intentional king, I think, is the first thing that we see in our passage today. Jesus is an intentional king. He had his face set toward Jerusalem. There, there, there was not some flippant thing like, you know, we'll get, to, we'll get there when we get there. No, he has an intention in mind. He's not stumbling into his purpose in these passages. He's actually been leading up to this in this intentionality that's actually quite audacious. It's, it's kind of almost against his character to be this specific about what he's coming to do. And so with that in mind, let's read these first couple of verses together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, or if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. So we see an intentionality that's at work here with Jesus. You know, a few years ago, it became very popular to, on New Year's Eve night, to start a movie at just the right time. And then at the, at the stroke of midnight, when the new year comes in, that something happens. So let me give you a few examples. So you could have it where the exact moment that the Death Star in Star Wars blows up. You can look this up online, and you can find the time code and exactly what time you should start that movie for the Death Star to blow up right at midnight. You could, you could say, I want Gandalf to exclaim, you shall not pass, right at midnight. And just see what happens. Maybe you want Marty McFly to get back to 1985, right in that moment at midnight. 
So Back to the Future, you can start. What about a Christmas movie? Well, Die Hard actually has a couple. That's right. I said Die Hard's a Christmas movie. If you want Hans Gruber to either start or finish, you sickos, if you want him to start or finish falling off of the Nakatomi Plaza, there's an exact time that you can start Die Hard, a Christmas movie. What about Avengers? Well, there's a lot in Avengers. Maybe you want Thanos' snap. Maybe you want the Avengers to assemble for the final battle. Maybe you want Iron Man's retaliatory slap. See, I love doing illustrations like this, 3,000. Some of you got that one. All right, very good. See, I, I know there's other examples that we could go on and on and on with, but it's amazing how much time people will give to these moments that they're building up to. What did it take for Jesus to know when to start the clock? For the exact time to come. Well, it took divine power. It took divine power for him to know exactly when he should be intentional to start and mark that moment across the heavens. And you may think, well, it seems like you're really stretching this point out in terms of his intentionality. Actually, what I want us to understand is what Romans 5, 6 says when it says that for while we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. And his triumphal entry marks another tick on the clock in the countdown to that happening for you and for me. At the right time. So I'm not stretching out a point. I think Christ wants us to understand something about his intentionality as our king. As the one who rules and reigns over us, he is quite intentional. I think this is actually expressed in three ways that we'll see in today's passage. It's expressed in his timing, as we've talked about a bit. It's expressed in his going public as the divine king. And it's expressed in his preparation. So let's take each one of these just briefly. His intentionality is expressed in his timing. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, but not just at any time. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem at the time of Passover. So the the city is going to be swollen with crowds of people getting ready to celebrate salvation from their bondage in Egypt. When a lamb's blood was put on a doorway of a house to save the children of God. Both the families and the oldest children in the home. So when we sing and worship songs like the Lamb of God in my place, we're talking about him being a substitute as a sacrifice on our behalf. But it's also pointing to real things in history where when the the blood of the Lamb was put over the doorpost, when it was one that saved the family, that that salvation is still available for you and for me. See, this is Jesus' last Passover, but this is when sacrifice can end as well. Because the final sacrifice has been made. He is being intentional in his timing. See, Rome would have been on high alert. This was not a normal day of the week when he was approaching the city. Especially for someone who was claiming to be the king to be rolling in with his 12-man entourage. He chose the first day of the week for his triumphal entry. Because it's going to precipitate his terrible death come Friday. He's intentional in his timing. He's going public as the divine king. He was purposely going public. Up to this point in his ministry, oftentimes, 
Uh, you had not seen him promoting this kind of public display. He wasn't like having the, the kids run along ahead of him with flyers saying, Jesus tonight on the, sit, on the mountainside. Come see how many loaves and fishes he can divide out. He's not kind of promoting himself in that way, and yet he's being intentional and going public. Not just as any king, he's going public as the divine king. No other will be like him. He had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds, but now he's inviting it by entering right in front of them. And what does that do? He's he's kind of courting danger in the midst of this moment. Rome is already on edge. But he has a calculated purpose in mind. He's being intentional. He's not just a king, ruling and reigning in majesty. He is also divine. We see this in verse 3's instruction when he says, If anyone asks the disciples what they're up to, the Lord needs them, is to be their reply. To refer to Jesus as the divine king is not just being redundantly repetitive this morning. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The divine one, pertaining to the true God, the divine nature, his divine perfections, pertaining to a, a deity, pertaining to the nature of God himself, proceeding from God in the same way that divine judgments do. He is the divine king. And Jesus has come to satisfy the divine wrath against sin. And Jesus has come to redeem a people to be his very own. That's you and me today. He's come with a divine purpose. He's rescuing us from the sin that comes out of our own hearts. He is the divine king. And he is intentional in his preparation. Jesus was demonstrating his omniscience. He's demonstrating his his all-knowingness. That he is in control of the entire situation. I I really do like that. I I wish I could be in control like this sometimes. Have you ever had that struggle too? But he is the one who can be in control like that because of his intentionality. He has all of the details figured out for this moment in the same way that he has all of the details for the things that you and I might struggle with figured out as well. In the way that he can minister to us. See, before we move on this morning, Jesus, the divine king, needed something. He needed a donkey. But he wants you and me. See, his intentionality went beyond the momentary need of a donkey to be a part of the fulfillment of prophecies of years gone by so that he could get to the place where he rescues you and me this morning. So that he could get to the place where he says... I am doing this. I need a donkey because I want my children to be redeemed. He is an intentional king. Jesus is also an anticipated king. See, none of Jesus' intentionality would have mattered if the people who were assembled in Jerusalem weren't filled with centuries of prophecies telling of one who would come to save them. That they too may have dismissed this man riding on a donkey and his zealot followers. They may have just thought it's another crazy person in this town. All of that intentionality would have gone to waste if he wasn't also an anticipated king. Prophecies from years gone by. A silence that had become deafening until it was pierced by a baby's cry that we celebrate at Christmas time. They were about to, in this city of Jerusalem, erupt in a celebration. Let's read again beginning in verse 4. 
This took place. What took place? Him needing a donkey, him getting ready to enter into the city of Jerusalem. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here we read a bit of an explanation of why Jesus would come in on a donkey. It wasn't just fulfillment of the prophetic, although it certainly was that, and it wasn't less than that. But it was a unique sign to the people. To the people who hadn't been lulled into sleep in those centuries that would go by in the silence, in the waiting. To the people it was a a prophetic sign, a unique sign, a sign that says this is different than what's happened before. Anyone who understood Jewish prophecy would have recognized the implications of royalty in Jesus' choice of transportation. See, we may not even make this connection today. It would have been unridden. An animal devoted to a sacred task in that day would have been one that had not been put to ordinary use. He's not telling them to go out into the field. He's not telling them to go and grab this off of a cart because this was a donkey that needed to be one that had not been used before for any other purposes. It was to be for the divine. Old Testament texts tell us that a king coming in on a donkey would have actually been a normal experience back in the day. It would have been a signal of humility from the sovereign before his people. The connection to Zechariah 9.9 says, Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous. He is victorious. But he's humble. He's riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. See, that was a kingly act that identified him with the royal line of David. And we see all throughout scripture that this is the line that he would be from. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings 1, it records the first public display of Solomon as a king. Solomon also came in riding on a donkey. He came riding through Jerusalem, and the people were crying aloud after him. And Jesus comes as a king in the line of David. That is King Solomon's father. It was a royal animal during King David's reign. Now, after him, Hebrew kings would switch over to horses like most of the other cultures were as well. And the donkey was considered unsuited to the dignity of kings. See, what a contrast. The kingdom that is coming in to Jerusalem, what a contrast to the kingdom that was ruling at that time. See, when Rome would have someone come in victorious, like a general. They would come in from war, and there would be things like elephants and tigers and other animals that would accompany him. The general would be in a chariot, and they would be pulled by the best of the horses. The swords of the soldiers behind him would be lifted high over their head. The streets would be filled with incense and the smell of incense. The whole city would be shouting and rejoicing over their victory. Can you imagine how Caesar, had he seen this moment, would have laughed if he saw this processional? Mocking not only what would be considered this supposed ruler riding in on a donkey, this lowly beast of burden, but mocking the people who were rejoicing in his coming as well. But see, he would have been laughing at the beginning of his own demise. Because the beginning of this parade is the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. It's the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. You know, Jesus uses even what we today consider a lowly animal 
But because of him using it, him putting it to purpose, it becomes royalty. My high school sign language teacher is here today. Beth Maddox. She and her husband Dan are here, and I did ask her very briefly for permission, and I told her it doesn't matter, I'm going to share it anyway. (laughs) Beth, a couple of weeks ago, I got to use your instruction to communicate with one of our guests at our church picnic. And then, too, I'm certain it was nothing I did with my hands that communicated well, but just facial expressions that helped them understand what I was saying. But in high school, when you go through American Sign Language, you you typically take a couple of different things for your personal sign, right? So, so for me, it was this. Because one day in class, when we were learning the sign for donkey, I did an impression. And it disrupted the entire class. And so then, you know, the letter C became Chris which was also because I played basketball in high school. But instantly, that became my name sign. If God can use one as lowly as a donkey, he can use me too. And this is not me trying to be self-deprecating in humor. I know how to make this story funnier. I know how to make this story edgier, but what I want us to identify here is not the humor of the moment. It's that if he can do this for a beast of burden like this, what can he do for you and for me, the ones who he had his face set toward Jerusalem for? How can he change our status, not just on this earth, but in the heavenly places where it matters for eternity? How can he re-identify us in a way that says you are no longer just creatures and creation, you are royalty? And you may think this sounds a little uncomfortable. Good. Sometimes you need to hear the truth. And the truth is you are not who you've been saved from. You are whose you've been saved to. And so we want to hear that truth because it says it explicitly in 1 Peter 2 where it says this. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see in Zechariah 9.9, the Old Testament prophet spoke of a future king who entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And in Matthew 21, that we see that Jesus is fully embracing that he is himself the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus is the anticipated king. And lastly this morning, Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus is the king of peace. Your Bible probably has a heading like mine does where it says triumphal or triumphant entry. 
But if we were being honest, Jesus deserves so much more than what we see here. Jesus deserves even so much more than what Rome could have put on in display because Jesus created the heavens out of nothing. He deserves so much more than this. And we might wonder, what kind of triumph, really, what kind of triumph is really happening here as Jesus entered into the city? I mean, Rome still ruled after this for a bit. The religious leaders of the day, they still despised him. The city was still a powder keg with tensions between earthly rituals and celebrations of heavenly deliverance. All of those things are still going on as we continue to read beginning in verse 8, Matthew 21, 8. Most of the crowd, excuse me, starting in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, it's hard for me to picture what the city of Jerusalem might have been like in this moment. I said earlier that it was a, a powder keg because it's combining religious ceremony with Rome's tension of authority. And an illustration came to mind last week as we were at lunch with, with a large group of people. And uh, my son, Alec, was just accepted and, and has registered for UCF, so he's been knighted in his own way. And we're rejoicing in that for the fall. So that means we're going to have two in college next year. Now you know how to pray for me. One a senior and one a freshman. Pray for their mom. As we were telling my in-laws about going to one of the UCF football games, it's hard not to know about the bounce house. I'm not talking about football in general. This isn't a sports illustration. This is actually what it means to stand in a metal stadium that when a particular song gets going, just kind of bounces to the beat. And whether you're jumping or not, you're moving. Because it's a steel stadium and that thing gets going. And can I just tell you, it's super uncomfortable for a guy of my size to be standing in the midst of the bounce house because you just wonder, when is it going to crash house? <laughs> See, that's what, it, that's what it, it seems to me when you hear that the city of Jerusalem was stirred up is what's happening. Murmurs that become the, a chaotic din and noise in the midst of the crowds. Who is this? What's happening here? The whole city was stirred up, verse 10 tells us. I can imagine that might have been similar to the bounce house on game day. If we read some of the events that happened as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what he goes on to in the rest of Matthew chapter 21, I encourage you to read it this week as a part of Holy Week preparations where he's going to cleanse the temple and he's going to curse the fig tree Along with today's passage, we would realize this king is more than just a prophet. See, he is the divine king. He's the prophesied king. He's the righteous king. He's the savior king. He's a gentle king. He's a peaceful king. He is the global king. He's the messianic king. He is the compassionate king. He is the prophetic king. And he is the holy king. It's what we learn reading through these passages together. And so Zechariah 9.9's fulfillment points us to a reigning Christ who will return in glory. Matthew 21, the last verses there say, Who is this? The crowds say. 
in their stirred up state. And the response is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's not a wrong answer. He really was a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He is Jesus, but it's an inadequate answer, isn't it? See, he's not only a prophet. He was the focal point and the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. If prophetic ministry is done right today, that's still the case. As we're told in Colossians 1.19, in him, that is Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it's an adequate answer to say that he is a prophet only. Even in this passage, we see that he's referred to as the the son of David in a few other ways. But consider this for our own lives today as we begin to move toward a close. A halfway Jesus with half-known truths bringing a half-salvation, applying a half-remedy to the magnitude of your need and my need isn't going to cut it. A half-known Jesus isn't going to cut it. It's easy to settle for, but it isn't going to work for us. And if you're wondering why is it that it seems that this Savior isn't quite working out for you anymore, I'd ask this question. Do you know him fully? See, the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, is better than we can know, but he reveals himself so we can find out. See, keep asking this crucial question that we see the crowds ask in verse 10. Who is this? For you and for me today, who is this Jesus to you? Do you know him fully? Do you know him that God would would give you the kind of clarity to understand the full Jesus who stands forward in our understanding rather than kind of back in the tools of how it is that we're trying to deal with the things that we're facing in this life? See, as our vision of Jesus grows, we grow as well. We grow in our faith and our ability to live out of this faith. We begin to get traction and grow and start rejoicing in the freedom of the Spirit. So who is he to you today? Who is this Jesus? Consider the psalmist's words in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You know, when we read that word Selah in Scripture, oftentimes, I I like to think of it this way. After our men's meeting yesterday morning, I went home and did some yard work. had some hired help with my son and one of his friends from his senior class. And uh, I'm sore. But I loved that moment when we were done and the tools were put away and 
You kind of look out over what you got accomplished and, oh, yeah. It just feels good, doesn't it? Imagine that on an eternal scale. No more striving, no more working, no more trying to accomplish something. Selah says you can rest in his finished work on your behalf. You can drink it in deeper than sweet tea or lemonade on a hot day when your yard work is done. Because it wasn't something you were doing to begin with. It's a work that's beyond you. Accomplished on your behalf. You know, when we read Psalm 24, 7 through 10, talking about this king of glory, we realize that he is the king of peace. He is the one who is acclaimed by his people. And the way that we crown him as king is with the sacrifice of praise of our own lives. Praising his name. Exclaiming that he is the God who saves. It's easy to throw around the word Hosanna today. It simply means this. God saves. So as they're crying out, Hosanna, they're crying out for salvation. They're crying out to the long-awaited one. And what we celebrate on Palm Sunday and considering the triumphal entry is the inauguration of the Prince of Peace that we learn about at Christmas time. It's the inauguration of him, not anymore as the Prince of Peace, but as the King of Kings. He's taking up his rightful place on the throne for you and for me. I've asked Jen Lewis to do a reading for us this morning. We're going to do this, uh, perhaps you were here at Christmas time. We did a reading from a book called Words for Winter. And I asked her today, just before we stand and sing and as we worship this King of Kings, I asked her just very simply this morning to do this. If she would just read for us from this book called Words for Spring as we consider our triumphant King. Miss Jen. O soul, see how your King comes. The grandeur of heaven bound in dusty flesh, carried forth by timid colt. O glorious juxtaposition, divinity and humanity enmeshed. Who else has known such heavenly heights, yet willingly embraced such impoverished depths? Who else has forsaken a throne of power, descending to a cross of humility? What glory revealed in your trajectory toward obscurity, though the crowds elevated you with hollow hosannas, you remain fixed towards lowering yourself in humble sacrifice, Selah. And yet, which path do I crave? The upward victory march of a palm-covered promenade or the downward crawl to a cross of self-giving love? Jesus, as I reflect upon your life, help me discern the misguided motivations of my own heart by the Holy Spirit's power. Forgive me for singing your praise with the crowds, but abandoning you when the road bends towards Calvary. 
Forgive me for craving the praise of man rather than the eternal glory that comes from God. Forgive me for following my selfish desires rather than your perfect will. Forgive me for worshiping your gifts rather than delighting in you as my greatest treasure. Forgive me for clinging to my comfort rather than surrendering all of my life to you. Selah. What tenderness that you do not turn from my brokenness, but weep over it, as you did over Jerusalem. What mercy that you do not reject me for my sin. You bled over it and made me white as snow. In what steadfast love you did not retract a single step towards the cross. Father, forgive them, still wells forth from your heart as scandalously now as it did then. As I bow in a posture of reverence to receive your mercy, I do so before the King, exalted by God, to the highest place in the universe. Continue to sanctify my heart, my motives, and my worship until you come again, no longer upon a frail colt, but triumphantly on a white horse, radiating the fullness of your glory and enthroned upon a redeemed chorus of hosannas resounding from every tribe, nation, and tongue. O soul, see how your king comes. <laughs> 